you're watching online, if you have a Bible at home, you can grab one. And turn to the book of Luke, chapter 23. We're going to be picking up in, in verse 26. You'll remember that we're in the middle of the, the passion narrative in the Gospel of Luke, looking at the suffering of Jesus as he is condemned, hand over to evil men, crucified. So again, we're looking at Luke chapter 23, and I'll begin reading in verse 26. And as they led Jesus away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There were also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we, indeed, justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of God. Father, we thank you that your word is true. Lord, we, we ask that you would use this to remind us of the, of the paradise that, 
was opened up through the cross, Lord. And as we look at this difficult section where we have to read of the suffering of the Son of God, that, that yes, it would bring a, a sober heart, but also a joyful heart knowing what was accomplished there. So, Lord, we pray for your illumination, your light of your spirit in our hearts to understand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I mentioned last week that uh, Jesus had just been condemned, and we looked last week at the, the four trials of Jesus, his theological trial before the Sanhedrin, his political trial before Pontius Pilate, his cynical trial before Herod Antipas, and then his diabolical trial before this violent mob. And eventually, at the end of our text last week, Pilate gave in to the violent mob, Verse 24 says that Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked and delivered Jesus over to their will. And of course, there's one important phrase that appears in uh, Matthew and in Mark that Luke does not include here. And it's that before Jesus was condemned, he was taken out and scourged. And if you know anything about Roman scourging, uh, this Roman, Roman flogging that people would endure, um, that itself was almost a, a death sentence, that before Jesus was brought out of the, the city, he was uh, beaten with a, a whip that would be covered with pieces of bone and glass that often would expose ribs um, and, and it would often kill people. And so even though we don't see that note here in Luke, we know that that took place. And so as Jesus is carried out in verse 26, he is already bloody. He is already near to death in many ways. And, and that's why we, we get this note that he was unable to carry his own cross, that the cross was so heavy, this large piece of wood, uh, and he had already received too much abuse to be able to, to carry it. And so they compelled a, a bystander, who we know his name, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross. And we think of the, the horror of that, but we also think of the, the privilege of being able to carry the cross of Christ. We reflect on our own calling in Scripture to suffer for Christ, to take up our cross daily, to follow Jesus. But then in verse 27, we see then also this, this group of women who were following Jesus. And you remember that at this point, all of his disciples had abandoned him. He was alone. Uh, but there was this final remnant of faithful women following Jesus. And Jesus looks at them, and you can imagine the, the compassion. And he says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourself and your children. And, and think of how shocking those words would have been considering the violence that Jesus had already endured and what he would have most likely looked like at that point. And he reminds them of the, the judgment that is going to be coming on Jerusalem and on the whole world as a result of sin. And then in verse 33, Jesus finally arrives at the place of crucifixion called the skull, in Aramaic called Golgotha, and there they nailed Jesus to the cross. And they put him between two criminals, which elsewhere they're called thieves. 
and one on his right and one on his left. And we read here of the abuse of Jesus, that the, the leaders mocked him, that the, the soldiers also uh, mocked him, treated him shamefully. But meanwhile, Jesus, in such agony, he cries out and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He doesn't call for the vengeance of God to be poured out on his enemies. He, he prays for mercy, for forgiveness. And that reminds us as well of the forgiveness that we are called to demonstrate to our enemies. And there's a lot here in this passage, but today we're going to focus on verse 39 to 43. We're going to camp out on these final verses in our text today. Uh, Jesus is hanging on the cross, and Luke is the only gospel writer who records a conversation that goes on between Jesus and the two men, the one on his right and on his left, who were also enduring the pain of crucifixion. And you think of um, the way that in the, when photography was, was first invented, uh, they would often take pictures of people at the moment of death, which does seem so morbid. But there was this, this sense of what is the moment of death? And this text, this conversation between Jesus and these men, is this powerful window into a, a holy and sacred moment of death where we're passing from this life to the next life. And it raises all kinds of, of questions if we're really thinking about our own hearts and our own lives of what is the moment of death like? What is it? What does it bring? What, how will we react in that moment? And then even more importantly, how can we be prepared for death? And that's the question that we're going to, to look at under three headings. We're going to look at how we prepare for death, that we prepare for death by remembering that there is life after death. We prepare for death by remembering that we can't earn life after death. And we prepare for death by remembering the promise for life after death. And so first, we prepare for death by remembering that there is life after death. And we see that truth both negatively and positively here in our text. And look at the negative side in verse 38. It says that one of the criminals who were hanged railed at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And so this criminal is hanging beside Jesus and is screaming at Jesus. That he's focused on saving his own life. He's focused on trying to avoid what seems to be now inevitable death coming upon him. He isn't thinking about heaven. He isn't thinking about life after death. He's, he's still focused entirely on the here and now. And in a way, you can think about this criminal representing what is called materialism. It's it's the idea that, that this material reality that we see around us is all that there is. And, and that's what you would see from atheists today, atheists throughout the ages, saying there is no God, there is no life after death, that this world, this life is all there is. But I would even venture to guess that there are religious atheists, that there are atheists in the pews of nearly every church 
in the world. And it's not the, the formal intellectual atheism that you read about in books or that you may meet with some individuals, but it's what some theologians call practical atheism. And a practical atheist is someone who says, yes, I believe in God, I believe in heaven, I believe in life after death. But practically, if you really dig down into their thought process of life on a daily basis, they live day-to-day -day life as if there is no God. They live day-to-day -day life as if eternity doesn't matter. They live day-to-day -day life as if the things that they're experiencing in the here and now are the most important reality. And of course, if we live like that, and we all are tempted to just focus on the things of this life, that we'll never actually be ready for death. That when that, that day of death comes, and we're staring it in the face, that we'll react a lot like this criminal. That we'll start to blame the people around us. We'll be angry. We'll be bitter. We may even become angry and bitter at God himself, saying, God, I'm suffering. How could you get me into this situation? Why won't you rescue me from the moment of death? How could you bring these things upon me that if you really loved me and you really cared for me, uh, if you really cared about your creatures, you wouldn't allow this kind of suffering. You wouldn't allow death. And if you really are God, if you really are the one who loves me and cares for me, rescue me from this situation. And if you won't, I'm not sure that I even want to worship you. That's the, the heart of, of someone who isn't prepared for death, someone who thinks that it's really just about this life. But of course, though we see this negative example from the first thief, we see then a, a positive example from the second thief, that he's looking at it differently, that one is focused on this life, but the other man also on the, the precipice of eternity, is beginning to think about life after death, that, that his, his focus is shifting from the here and now to another reality, which is why he, he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And it's clear that he's not talking about the kingdom of this life, but the kingdom to come. And I've, I've thought about this recently, Many of you know that my uh, wife's grandmother passed away recently, and it was very expected. She was in her mid-90s. Uh, she had dementia for many years. She was a believer that there was so much to celebrate in her life and her passing. Uh, but I was struck by a text that Grace and her other sisters received from one of her aunts. Uh, right at the very end, it was... Uh, very close to the moment of death for her grandmother. And this is what the text said. It says that we are in holy times, walking your grandmother to the edge of eternity, praising God for the assurance that Dorothy is a sister in Christ. Keep praying for God's perfect timing, peace, and comfort. And so the, the second thief on the cross is a picture of what it looks like to be prepared for death. Also, Grace's aunt here, that, that text is a picture of what it looks like to be prepared for death. That, that she is prepared for the death of another, of a loved one, saying that we are in holy times 
walking your grandmother to the edge of eternity. That the focus in those moments could so much be on the, the shutdown of the human body and all that comes along with that and how painful that is and how hard that is to see. And we can mourn those things and recognize the reality of those things. But there's this sense of something beyond. That it's not that the shutdown of the human body is not the end of the, the, the story. That we are in holy times, walking to the edge of eternity. That's how we should think about the death of loved ones. That's how we should think about our own death by the grace of God when that time comes. And so again, we prepare for death by remembering that there is life after death. But then second, we prepare for death by remembering that we can't earn life after death. If there is a life after death, how do we take hold of it? And that's what we start to see in verse 40, that this second thief rebukes the first thief. And he says, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And this is the key verse, verse 42, 41. We indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And that is the right response. That he is recognizing his own sin before a holy and righteous God. He's recognizing the reality that is stated in Scripture, that the wages of sin is death. And he even is recognizing what the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans 1, that, that the, the wages of sin is death, but, but that we receive the due penalty for our error. That there is this, this due penalty of death, the wages of sin. And this is how we should think about our lives as well, that we may not be thieves like this man. We maybe haven't committed as, as many gross outward sins as him, but we are sinners just like this man on the cross beside Jesus. We have also failed to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have also failed to love our neighbor as ourselves, and the wages of our sin is death. Our sin separates us from a holy and righteous God that we can never then work our way up to God through good works. And no matter how much good we try to do, it's not enough. And that is ultimately why we need Jesus, why we need his life, his death, his resurrection. And you see that this thief recognizes his profound need for Jesus, that he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then he says, Jesus says in response, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And so you look at this and you say, how was this man saved? How did he earn eternal life? Well, it wasn't because he was baptized, even though baptism is important. It wasn't because he joined a religious organization or the church, though the church is important. It wasn't that he had lived a holy life 
And he says, well, I know I'm a really good person, so God's going to welcome me into heaven, that he hadn't been a good person. He didn't lay out a moral resume before Jesus. He didn't blame his failings on his parents or his situation or his culture. He didn't blame his past. He didn't say that he was simply a victim. But no, you look and he says, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. That he's looking to Jesus Christ alone for salvation. He's saying, I am a sinner. I deserve this justly. And I recognize that, that we were all guilty, that only one person is innocent. Only one person doesn't deserve to be on the cross. And that is Jesus Christ who is next to me. And I know that he is a king and that he will enter into a kingdom. And that the only way that I'm going to have that hope in that kingdom is through him alone. I'm fixing all of my hope, all of my confidence on him. And this view of religion explodes every single idea of man-made religion that is out there in the world. Because every other religion, every counterfeit religion, teaches on some level that we earn eternal life by the things that we do, by our moral resume, by our moral performance. And I mean, you can think about the, the image that you get in, in movies of religion, that the it's this idea of God as this nice old man in the sky with a, a long white beard. And he's, he's kind of like Santa Claus because he's, he's watching to see who's naughty and nice. Um, and that the, the nice people go to the good place. The, the, the naughty people go to the bad place. And so uh, the answer to, to be prepared for death is to be nice, to be good. And if you're just nice enough and good enough maybe he will reward you. Again, that's the idea that we see just in the popular religion of the culture, but we also see in many religions, in many formal complex theologies. And maybe even that's where some of you are. You're saying, I'm a good person. I recycle. I give money to the poor. I, I care for people around me. I love my family, I love my children, I'm a, I'm a good citizen, I vote, I served in the military. I, you can go down the list of all the ways that we try to put these stickers on our moral resume. And, we and maybe that's where you are thinking, on some level, God is going to accept me because maybe, just maybe, I'm good enough. So you cross your fingers and hope that you've done enough. But in reality, what we see here is that we don't earn eternal life. We don't earn life after death through good works. That the key is recognizing that we are the thief on the cross. That we are the sinner who has failed to love God perfectly. And that we recognize that we have hope in one person. We have hope in the person and the work of Jesus Christ alone. And again, we prepare for death by remembering that we can't earn life after death. But then third and finally, we prepare for death by remembering the promise for life after death. And we see this promise from the lips of Jesus in verse 43, that Jesus says, 
Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And that is a glorious promise of Scripture. It's the same promise that the Apostle Paul talks about in Philippians 1, verse 21, where he says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And so there's Paul saying, to be away from the bodies, to be with the Lord, that, that I, I would rather depart and be with Christ, to be with him in paradise, but I'm willing to stay here in order to serve those around me. He says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So that whether we are, are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. And so the Bible teaches very clearly that human beings are not just material reality, that we have a, a physical dimension, we have a spiritual dimension, we have a body, we have a soul. And that the moment that we die, the moment that our, our physical body shuts down, that our souls go directly to Christ. They're not put into some sort of uh, a holding tank before heaven. Uh, there is no doctrine of purgatory in the Bible. There's no idea that, that we have some sort of middle time of cleansing or purging before we are able to get into heaven. That isn't taught anywhere in the Bible. We don't believe that we simply fall asleep and that we don't wake up again until the resurrection of our bodies what is sometimes called soul sleep. But what we see here is this glorious truth that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That when we die in the Lord, that today we will be with him in paradise. That is the promise of scripture. That is our hope. That is what we meditate on, what we think about, what, what we should always focus on day to day. And I heard recently about the, the way that Starbucks cha uh, trains their employees. And you probably say, well, why is he, are you talking about Starbucks all of a sudden? Uh, but trust me, this, this relates, that, that apparently the way that they, they train employees is, is that they get them to, to write down scenarios that they will face with customers. And so rather than just waiting till some mean person insults them while they're trying to serve them coffee, they'll... They'll say, you know, imagine the situation. What does the person say? When they insult you, do you, you t are you going to breathe or hold your breath? Are you going to raise your shoulders or lower your shoulders? Are you going to count a couple seconds before you answer? Are you going to, to smile or are you going to frown? And get people to very much visualize in, in a detailed way what it will be like in that moment. And they found that when they had employees do this, that they actually 
we're less likely to blow up at customers or to respond in hostility because they had actually visualized being in that situation. And ironically, that idea is very similar to what the English Puritans taught back in the 1600s, and they called it Christian meditation. And it's very different from Eastern meditation, that, that Eastern meditation is about emptying our minds, where Christian meditation is about actually filling our minds and our hearts with the truth of God. And that what we do is we take a truth of Scripture, it could be a Bible verse, it could be a doctrine, and you, and you camp out on that verse, and you, in a concrete way, imagine what it would be like to live that out in some situation, in different situations of life. And I think that, that as we think about that idea of Christian meditation, that this promise here in verse 34, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That is a truth where we can camp out, we can imagine, we can, we can meditate on that truth. In other words, that, that meditation process on that verse begins with recognizing who the promise is for. That this promise was not given to the thief who was raging against Jesus. That this promise was given to the one who was admitting his sin, who was looking to Jesus for hope for life after death. And, and what that shows is that this promise of, of paradise, of life, of hope, is on offer to those who humble themselves before Christ, who trust in Jesus. But that also means that there is hope for each and every one of us, that if you are hearing these words, that means that you are alive, that you are here. And that means that there is time, there is hope, uh, there is ability to be able to, to repent, to trust in Jesus, to look to him and say, Jesus, remember me when you enter into, your, into paradise, to hear the words of Jesus saying, truly today you will be with me in paradise. But then when we know that, that we are in Christ, that we are united to him by faith, then we can really latch on to the truth, to the promise of this verse, and meditate on this truth. And, and I think one way that you can do that is to actually visualize the moment of death. And that sounds so counterintuitive, something that that you would so often think that you, is that what you want to think about? But then imagine the moment of death. You don't know what it's going to be like. It could be laying in a hospital bed. It could be hitting black ice and spinning into oncoming traffic. It, it could be uh, falling down in your bedroom with pain in your heart. You don't know what that moment will be. But then imagine being in that moment of whatever it is and imagine then closing your eyes in that moment. And you, and you think, what are the feelings? What are the emotions? What are the, the regrets? What are the hopes? What are the joys? And then imagine the truth of this verse flooding into your mind and into your heart. That truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And you think of that, of being a promise that isn't rooted, of I hope I have done enough. It's not a promise that, that is based on just how good you've been, but how good Jesus Christ is. Uh, it is rooted in his life, his death, his sacrifice, that it's, it's a sure promise. It's, it's a promise where you can really hang up your hat. It's a, it's a promise that, that will never let you down. 
And that, that through that promise, then, you can know the true peace that surpasses understanding, to be overwhelmed with, with hope and, and joy and, and confidence with your eyes fixed in the hope that is beyond. But then the next part of the, the meditation process is, is then opening your eyes again. And the opening your eyes again, that you're suddenly in the presence of Christ, beholding his glory with unveiled faces, you're seeing the, the glory of God. You're comp- filled with complete joy, complete gladness. All the pain, all the struggles, all of the illnesses that you have faced, all the sorrows gone, filled with complete joy, complete gladness, uh, with loved ones who have fallen asleep in the Lord, all the saints of the ages glorifying God. That, that is then the picture. That is the reality. That is ours because of what Jesus did, because he hung on the cross for us. And so that is ultimately how we prepare for death, by, by remembering the promise of Jesus that was sealed with the blood of Christ. 